I gave him my heart and a few other things. I don't know how long that I stayed upon the hill, but the moon had disappeared and so had Christopher McGill. <laughs> so I went home and I thought I'd die. Then father said, make another try. So out I went to become a wife and found the real love of my life. Welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, November 19, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna has been writing about theater for more than 10 years for numerous publications, including Playbill Magazine, BroadwayWorld.com, Time Out New York, and HowlRound. She's a voting member of the Drama Desk Awards and has been contributing to Broadway Radio podcasts for the last year. And I also might point out that, Jenna, you have your own podcast now called Spotlight, and we debuted it with a conversation with Michael John Lacusa. That was fun, wasn't it? It was. So uh, we're going to link to that in the show notes if you missed the talk with Michael John, and we're looking forward to the next one. Thank you very much. So am I. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Good morning. So Peter is uh, off in the Windy City, which is ironic because we are having such huge high amounts of wind here today. Peter's in Chicago, the city, not the, not the musical, um, but will be back joining us next week. And, and last, week, last week he was in Cincinnati, the city, not the musical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not the WKRP television show either. You know. <laughs> as God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, but never you fear, Peter's going to join us later on to give us answer to trivia, uh, last week's answer to trivia, and give us a new question. So uh, never fear there. All right. So first up, Michael, you had, yes. you got to go to what seemingly is the ticket of the week. Bigger than Dear Evan Hansen, bigger than... <laughs> uh, Ben Pass, uh, not Patrick. Ben, <laughs> what's his last name? Ben, ben Platt. Ben Platt. Ben, Platt. ben yes. Platt's last show, bigger than Ben Platt's last show, bigger than um, Hello Dolly and Bet, bigger than uh, Lin Manuel in uh, Hamilton. You got to see Brigadoon at City City Center, which tell us how large is your rave. Well, it's it's quite as large as it could possibly be. This is a beautiful production. Uh, just just a few performances. Uh, not technically a, a New York City Center Encores production. Uh, this is a gala presentation as a fundraiser for City Center. But there are a lot of uh, Encores uh, types uh, people involved, including music director. Rob Berman uh, and Jack Viertel is the artistic advisor. The Encore's orchestra is how it's billed. Um, and this is a show that I've always said uh, quite a while ago, I realized that there were certain aspe aspects of the plot that um, 
if you look at them closely, they don't really hold up and they become a little ridiculous. But I think that this will is still a very, very beloved show that was very obvious from the critical and the audience reaction to this production. And I think it will remain so because, first of all, the score by Lerner and Lowe is quite magnificent. The ballads are absolutely beautiful. The uh, dance music is great. The the comedy numbers still are on point. And it's, it's on point. That's an interesting because uh, there's so much ballet dancing in the show. Uh, and it the core story of a love that transcends time, I think, is so powerful. And we have seen that in some other musicals that even if some of the details of the story are a little dicey and maybe don't really hold up, the emotion involved is just so potent that it carries in, in, in combination with the beautiful dancing and the gorgeous music. Uh, and, and that this is still a classic, even if and not maybe in the absolute front rank, uh, just right behind the, the ones that we would all name as the ultimate classics of musical theater of all of all history. And so I am so glad that that encores uh, that, that city center did it. And I'm sure they are, too, because I have the raves um, from both, again, critics and audiences have been absolutely incredible. And the cast, uh, I don't think they could be bettered. We have Kelly O'Hara. uh you know, once again, being magnificent in, as Fiona McLaren. And um, as some of our listeners may remember, originally cast opposite her as Tommy Albright was Stephen Pasquale, but he dropped out, I guess, specifically to do junk uh, at, at Lincoln Center, which is a very different kind of a show. So they, their um, uh, second choice, I won't, I won't say it that way, uh, was Patrick Wilson, who absolutely was just great. He fits the part so perfectly. He uh, has such a natural presence on stage playing this, uh, well, modern-day New Yorker, a modern day for 1947, who, with his friend Jeff Douglas, played by Asif Mandvi, uh, gets magically, uh, magically comes upon this Scottish village that only appears one day in every 100 years. And so, of course, Tommy falls in love with Fiona and has to decide if he is going to stay there in the village with her, which he apparently is allowed to do according to the the magic that has been created um, and give up everything he knows in the modern world uh, because he loves her so much or if he's going if he won't be able to bring himself to do that and he's going to go back to New York and be miserable for the rest of his life. So um, you you might be able to figure out what he decides to do, even if you have never seen the show or the movie. But this was a, a, a really, really beautiful production, directed and choreographed by Christopher Wielden, who uh, is from the ballet world. And this is basically, as I would say, his second musical theater pro production, the first one being An American in Paris on Broadway, which did quite, quite well in itself. So I think he has a, a, a boundless, endless future. Uh, who, who knows how 
far he may go in musical theater if he stays with it, and I and I and I think and hope that he will. Um, the dancing, the choreography. There were some nods, uh, nods as the word is being used to the original by Agnes DeMille, but but very little as far as I, as I could see, as far as his recreation of actual steps. Um, all of the choreography, or almost all of it, seemed new and beautiful and absolutely appropriate, and performed magnificently by a fabulous cast. In addition to the cast that I mentioned, um, some other standouts included Stephanie Lee, Stephanie J. Block as Meg Brocky, and um, <laughs> I almost didn't Robert Fairchild in the main dance role of Harry Beaton. Uh, and you're going to be hearing more from him uh, in the future as far as musical theater as well, because he seems to be making that transition. He gave his last performance at New York City Ballet just recently and is now going to be, I guess, focusing more on theater and musical theater. Um, Sarah Esty, I must mention, also gorgeous, beautiful dancer as uh, Fiona's sister, Jean McLaren. And I have to say, in her few lines, a really superb actress. Um Ross Lakites, someone I'm not f- familiar with, sang beautifully as Charlie Dalrymple uh, in his two showcase numbers, I'll Go Home with Bonnie Jean and Come to Me, Bend to Me. And then uh, Dakin Matthews uh, was the the Mr. Lundy of one's dreams. He was just so, uh, so warm and so so powerful and, and such a stage presence. Uh, uh, the I, I I can't say enough about this production. Even the edits, uh, whoever decided to do the edits, I, I imagine most of them were Christopher Wielden. They were very very intelligent. Uh, one didn't feel like one missed much at all. There were a couple of jokes that are perhaps a little dated and maybe a little politically incorrect nowadays. They were gone, but there were still lots of them remaining. And I think Asif Manvi got every. Uh, got a laugh on every single line that he was supposed to. Um, but in all respects, uh, the, there were some lovely projections. The costumes were excellent. Um, I think, though, that the moments when the roof of City Center almost <laughs> uh, exploded and went up to the moon were those where Patrick Wilson and Kelly O'Hara were singing these beautiful duets uh the heather on the hill almost like being in love uh from this day on their their voices just blended so beautifully and i think um we we've uh, we've been lucky enough to hear and see kelly in many musical theater roles uh, over the past several years patrick less so because he's focused on i think other things film and tv to a greater extent the last time i heard him sing live was in that production of uh that presentation of guys and dolls a few years ago. And he, um, as other, several other people have remarked, it seems like his voice is only improved and matured. It sounds a little more, uh, baritonal and larger, uh, than it used to. He always had a good voice. Um, but it seems maybe a little, a little more towards the baritone end of the spectrum rather than tenor. And he, he it sounded as if this music was written for him. Um, I uh, th- this has been apparently such a hit that 
as often happens in these cases, uh, there is buzz that there may be some other future life for the production. That would be an amazing thing. I, uh, what, whatever my flaws, uh, my my problems with the book, I think the score alone is worth the production. And not to mention that this this magnificent, incredible dancing and choreography. Uh, presided over by Christopher Wielden. So I, um, you know, I, I, uh, whoever has had the chance to get to see it in one of its very few performances, uh, I'm sure that you're very, very happy about that. And I guess that if worse comes to worse, uh, one could probably, um, well, I certainly hope that they've taped it for archival purposes and one could go and see it at, at, the Lincoln Center Library at some point, um, but if not, you know it's uh, you know the production itself is vanishing into the mist as of <laughs> <laughs> as of as of this weekend, and uh, I it just will think of it as a little miracle that got visited on uh, the on New York City Center just just for a few days this week. Uh, Matt and I talked about this on uh, on today on Broadway. Uh, at- and I refer to it as a a uh, Lucian football scenario where they keep on teasing these excellent productions in front of us and then they never uh, make it further so that a wider audience can see it. Uh, just everybody in the theatrical community who's in town this weekend is raving about Brigadoon. Uh, and the thing is, is that, it, you know, hard to pull together Patrick Wilson's schedule and Kelly's schedule. I mean, Kelly is mm. in essence booked for the next two years. So could you really do Brigadoon uh, with Kelly uh, in the next two years? I, I don't think that that's going to happen. Right, but, uh, right. You could do it with somebody else, but um, but there seems to be a, a tremendous amount of magic there happening at City Center. Well, I must say, I and I had on, as if all of that wasn't enough. Sitting next to me was John Schmidt, a ninety-five-year-old original Broadway cast member of, of Brigadoon, who has who wow. came to see the show from Columbus, Ohio. His last time in New York was nineteen fifty-five. He was also in the original cast of Paint Your Wagon and the show called Polonaise and a few other things. And he, I, I won't get into the how this was a, all arranged because it's quite a story. But John was interviewed for the City Center blog about his experience in the original production. And he, uh, just to to be sitting next to him while this unfolded, he would start to... um, uh, sing under his breath a few times, and I, I just I, I had tears in my eyes on se- on several occasions. I, I I would have anyway because the emotional content of this show is so great. But then to have this living link to the original production and Agnes DeMille and Bobby Lewis, the legendary original director, and Franz Allers, the original uh, musical director, not to mention Lerner and Lowe and and John's stories about Lerner and Lowe and and Agnes DeMille, it it, it was. Um, an unforgettable afternoon for me, and, and 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 obviously for John as well. Just not not to be believed. A quick look at IBDB shows that the last time Brigadoon was uh, on a Broadway stage was 2010 for a one night only uh, performance at the Schubert. Right, uh, and previously to that was uh, 1981 at the Majestic. The right. was it the the show. Pre- Immediately previous to Phantom, is that it? 
<laughs> well, I don't know. I remember there was Marty Vidnovic um, and Mick Bustert and Stephen Lehu. Those were three people who were in that. And John Curry. Uh, that, I, I saw that one, too, and that was quite a hit. Yeah, it, it comes back. Wow. This is not a show that, you know, I mean, it's, it's not Annie. It's a huge cast. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the uh, that 81 revival that you're talking about. Uh, huge cast. It scrolls on for pages. <laughs> Yeah, it's not Annie in terms of uh, amount of productions because it is difficult to do it right, and especially in terms of the the, the choreography and the cast size. But so th- this was this is really something amazing. So I looked at the majestic uh, history. It was Brigadoon Forty Second Street, of course, and then oh. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, <clears throat> and now Phantom it will be there now and forever. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay, uh, next up in the reviews, uh, Jenna and I got a chance to see the band's visit. Michael talked about it last week. So, Jenna, Mm -hmm. tell us what your thoughts are on the band's visit. I don't have an awful lot to add to what Michael and Peter said uh, last week. Uh, This is an absolutely lovely show about the power of art to help people connect and bond and about how when you deal with people one-on-one, it's a lot easier to connect than if you're trying to look at people as members of a group. So, uh, really lovely piece. Uh, It's very smart and it's sympathetic and it trusts the audience to have a brain and to understand all of the underlying conflicts that are going on in the region. It takes place in the uh, in the early 90s, uh, sorry, the mid-90s. And it assumes that we will know what was going on and how things were very complex at the time and still are com- very complex today. Uh, the cast does... fantastic work uh tony shalhoub he always just disappears into his roles he does so beautifully here he plays a man whose inability to communicate effectively has caused him a lot of pain in the past so now he doesn't know how to express his feelings without causing further pain he is always very timid in his speech his movements he is clearly very frightened of hurting people and he just conveys that wordlessly until late in the play we find out why he is so afraid of hurting and why he is so afraid of communicating katrina lank she was so amazing and indecent and by the way if you didn't see that on pbs this weekend go check it out on their website uh she is smart, she is sexy, she is funny and sweet. She makes her character a small-town Israeli woman, very complex. Uh, again, there's a lot of humor in her role, but also a lot of sadness. And she balances both really beautifully. I hope both of them will be remembered come award times. Uh, a smaller role, but one that really struck a nerve with me, is Kristen Sia playing uh, Iris, a new mother who is suffering from postpartum depression and dealing with a lot of frustration. And her performance is much smaller, but no less powerful. Uh, I was really fascinated watching her and seeing what she had to do. So David Yazbek uh, wrote the score and Itamar Moses wrote the book. Both are really lovely. They create a sense of place very effectively and very powerfully. And notably, much of the music comes from the on 
stage band, the titular band that's visiting this little town. And it's always exciting to see the actors play their own instruments and how they create that music live. It adds a different level to the show. Not that I'm insulting shows with traditional orchestras, which this show also does, but the moments when the band is playing together are very powerful and it creates a real sense of realism, I suppose, and very nice moments. Great score, great book. I need to cheer Scott Pask's set, which is a turntable with some buildings. It looks very uh, simple, uh, but it's very effective. The turntable just shifts and we're in a new location and it works very nicely. Uh, Tyler Mikolo's lighting is also really, uh, really impressive. At one point, we see time just pass through having uh, by having a light move from up above the stage from one end to the other so that the shadows on the stage shift. And we can see a day has gone by just from the shadows. It's a lovely, simple little moment, but it's very effective and really well executed. So I hope they will both be remembered come award time as well. It's a lovely show. I really can't add much more to it from what Peter and Michael said last week but it's worth seeing. It's smart. It's effective. It's very powerful. I went with an Israeli friend, and as we walked out of the theater, she kept saying how real it was and how much it meant to her that she really connected with the characters. And as an American, I connected with them as well. It's a lovely story of the power of art and the power of music. So very strongly recommended. Uh, again, I don't have much more to add than Michael, Peter, and now Jenna, uh, other than, you know, take a look at that uh, the band's visit had its world premiere uh, last year. Uh, mm. It was last year at the Atlantic. Uh, and to get from the Atlantic to be uh, really a, a, a tremendously lauded uh, uh, play musical. I, I guess we're going to call this. Is it going to be in the player in the musical category? Is it a? Is it a oh, play a with music? Is no. Is, it's a. It's a musical. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if other. You know, to me, it's a musical. But I wasn't sure if others were considering it a play with music or you know along the same lines that um, that indecent was sort of a. Uh, in that same category of, of a play with music, but I think it's a musical. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah, I agree. Sure, I mean, sure. And I think yeah. David Yazbek would agree. It's a musical. You know, he, um, I, every aspect of the show I think is just great. And Itamar Moses contribution should be really lauded. I have not seen the film on which this is based. As I said, in my review, I think maybe this is going to be a case like kinky boots where maybe the film wasn't necessarily hugely popular in this country, but now people are going to be seeking it out. Um, and I, I certainly will be, I know, I know that, but also uh, for David Yazbek really what an achievement because on top of everything else, he, I, I think he uses uh, middle Eastern, sounds, harmonies, yes. rhythms, and in such a, a way that sounds so organic. But also, you know, he's always been famous for, um, I think, being able to write lyrics for the common person when necessary. He He's f fond of using vernacular uh expressions in in his in his shows. Uh, but on, in this case, you have the other overlay of that 
all of the characters are supposed to be singing in English, which is supposed to be at least their second, maybe their third language. Uh, and so I didn't think there was a moment where it seemed um, where they were expressing themselves in a way that didn't seem congruous with, with that fact. And that can't be easy <laughs> uh, to write something simple enough that, that it would sound like it's their second or third language and, and yet be interesting enough in terms of rhymes and, and, and wordplay play and, and vocabulary. So I, he, I think he's going to win a Tony and I hope he does. <laughs> I hope so too. I, you know, I don't, you know, there's lots of other things opening of course, but I, I think we're going to see him on, on stage getting that Tony. I certainly hope so. Uh, so, uh, before we started recording, uh, Jenna and I, I, I think we were at the same performance, weren't we, Jenna? Yes, we were. You were stalking me again. Well, it's what I do. That's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Jenna, had uh, you brought a friend who is Israeli, and we were talking about how authentic some of these um, the uh, the Israeli sections are, and and they had actually the the band's visit actually have uh, they brought in an Arabic dialect coach, an Israeli mm. dramaturg and dialect coach. So, uh, it you know, I, I'm beyond a layman when it comes to Arab and Israeli uh, uh, dialect, but it, it seems so real to me. And I was wondering how much history that these actors had with it, had with their, their respective languages that they had to uh, work with in certain sections. So uh, Jenna, you felt, you said your friend that had saw, uh, was with you that they uh, felt it was very good as well. Yes, uh, she did. She was you know, because she was Israeli. She was already looking forward to seeing it because how often do we get musicals about Israel on Broadway? Uh, she at one point, as we were walking out of the theater, she was talking about a fight scene uh, among several of the Jewish characters, where they're yelling at each other in Hebrew, and she was laughing about uh, one line and said, "Oh, I heard that when I was over there." But this is what people curse at each how they curse at each other, and this is all just in a very street vernacular Hebrew, and this is how the locals talk. This is not something you're going to find in dictionaries, but mm. clearly they paid attention to how the locals speak. And she just thought it was so funny to hear this phrase that she heard. I, I want to say her family's in Tel Aviv. Don't please don't quote me on that. But she goes back to visit regularly, and she said this is what she hears regularly. And she really enjoyed that again that realism that this is all. It felt very authentic wow. to her as someone who spends a lot of time in Israel. Uh, one of the other things that I was thinking about, and this is a tremendously nitpicking. At, at this wonderful play and score and everything else that's that's we've seen in front of us is that the uh, I wanted to see Jenna what your thoughts were about the relationship of the Tony Shalhoub character and the Katrina Link character you know I I don't know how old Tony Shalhoub is and I don't know how old Katrina Link is but it it seems to me that he, he's about double her age, and I wondered how realistic that was and and the in the role of women in the band's visit hmm there are not that many women in the band's visit um there there are a few, but 
Katrina Lank is clearly the lead, while there are more men because it's a men's it's an all male band. So most of the band, well, all of the band characters are male. There are only a handful of women on the stage. Uh, but like I said, the role of uh, Iris, mm. uh, yes, I mean that's a very dramatic role, even though it's significantly smaller than Katrina Lang's. Um, as to uh, as to the age difference, it didn't it didn't bother me. And again, because the story only covers a few hours of one day, it doesn't even cover a full twenty four hours. Um, we don't see well. I can't. Ironically, what Brigadoon only covers twenty four hours, but Brigadoon is. <laughs> yeah. But Brigadoon is a fantasy, whereas this is much more based in reality. And that yeah. was one thing I liked about it that uh, it is much more realistic. That the problems are not all solved in twenty four hours, and that everything isn't fixed. People make progress. People make changes, but everything isn't sewn up neatly in twenty four hours. Um, so it has a certain realism. I mean, obviously, there are younger women who date older men. And I, but even saying that they're dating isn't quite accurate. They go out for dinner, one dinner, and they flirt a little bit. They talk, they bond, they connect. There's a hint of romance, but it's just 24 hours. Mm. So unlike Brigadoon, where a man is willing to give up his entire life in America, in 20th century America, because of one woman that he's known for less than a day... In this case, the characters make progress with their lives. Maybe they bond, maybe they connect. But, I mean, I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that the band doesn't suddenly decide we're going to move here. <laughs> they don't give up everything after just 24 hours. They change, they grow. But uh, in terms of the age difference being problematic, no, because the relationship doesn't change. It doesn't, the relationship doesn't become I'm going to give up everything for you. It doesn't there, have a chance to blossom into. It doesn't. And maybe it will later because the play only covers that one day. Maybe they do some of them do return and visit and keep those connections alive. Maybe it's like come from away where they go back to visit regularly and they they bond and they maybe the relationship will grow later. Who knows? But for right now, it's a connection. It's the spark. And we see how the spark changes them and encourages them. But this is much more grounded in reality, where a relationship does not completely overwhelm your life in 24 hours. One thing I would add is that, James, is that although Katrina Lenk looks phenomenal, I think she, there, you know, there are a couple of lines that indicate she's not supposed to be that young. I mean, she, she's already been married. Her marriage ended. I don't know if she ever actually says divorce, but the point is her husband. Yeah has not been around for quite some time. So I, I mean, it's, she's not supposed to be in her twenties or maybe even in her, in her thirties, uh, maybe like, maybe I'm thinking somewhere around 40 or, or a few years younger than that. And I, so, so I think that I would add that to the mix of what you're saying. And also because they don't really have, uh, I mean, the fact that there's this tremendous connection between her character and Tony, Tony Shalhoub's doesn't mean that they, uh, necessarily going to have any kind of a extended relationship going forward. Right, exactly. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. I yeah. don't think that's the purpose of, I don't think that's the point of the story, that it's the yeah. connection that matters, maybe not the relationship that will become romantic, maybe it will, maybe it won't, but does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. 
okay. and let me one last thing before we get off of uh, the band's visit. Uh, forgive me. Did either one of you mention Adam Cantor as the telephone guy? I no. did when I, when we spoke last time. Yes, he is one of the new members of the cast since the, since the off Broadway run. And uh, the other one is the one uh, playing Poppy. I'm sorry, I don't have I, Itai Benson. Uh, is that right? Yes, Itai. Uh, hold on, I'm bringing up the the program. Itai Benson, who was wonderful, wasn't he yeah. adorable? Really, just very sweet. Yes. So uh, Adam Cantor, who's got one of the toughest roles in the show, yeah. to you know focus on that telephone for most of the show, and wow, does it pay off at that song mm-hmm. at the end? Oh, and I'm glad you mentioned him because I should mention to fa- uh, people who are fans of Adam Cantor from previous shows such as Fiddler on the Roof or maybe the last five years or Rent, you may uh, not recognize him for a while because yeah. he um, he has very long hair in this show. At first, I thought he had just grown it out, but then actually I, I got to see him um, a- afterwards, after the show, and it's a wig. Uh, so it looks – I think it looks very good on him, but you yeah. you literally – May may think where's Adam? Where's Adam? Yeah, because <laughs> he looks very different. Yeah, uh, and what a what a song that he's got at the end. Of, oh yes. Of oh my show. gosh, yes. Wasn't it. that lovely? Yeah, loved it. Yeah, right. and again, and, uh, yeah. No, what were you gonna say? I was going to say, just again, adding on to what was said last week about how powerful all of the different storylines are and how just real they feel and how emotional, uh, how emotionally they pay off. Yeah. Yes. Lovely. So it was an evening of learning for me to learn about two cultures that I have very little direct contact with. uh, And I, I find it tremendously interesting uh, to the next show where I have a lot of exposure to the culture and yet <laughs> I learned a whole lot more in Latin history for morons where John Laguizamo uh, schooled us literally and figuratively. Michael and I got a chance to see it uh, down at Studio 54 and uh, Jenny, you're going this afternoon, right? Yes, I am and cannot wait. All right. So Michael, why don't you start us off with Latin history for morons? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, yesterday I was in the subway and there were uh, two people from uh, – I forget where they said they were from. But anyway, they were they were Spanish-speaking. And I was trying to help them buy a Metro card. <laughs> and I wasn't doing very well. Such a mensch. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, they had, they had very little English and I have very little Spanish. But then I managed to come up with three words uh, for what I needed to say. And and suddenly it was a, like a light bulb went off, and they're like, oh, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> but I, uh, that's one of my regrets uh, living in this city that I never learned Spanish. Anyway, um, Latin History for Morons, written by and starring John Leguizamo, which was first uh, done not long ago at all. It was this past. Uh, this past spring, spring of 2017, at the Public Theater, directed by Tony Tacone. And uh, the conceit of this show is that John Leguizamo, the phenomenally talented John Leguizamo, um, had to uh, was trying to give advice to his son, who had a school project in which uh, the son had to come up with a, a hero uh, to name someone who was a hero to him in his life. And so uh, 
there's much discussion of who it should be and you know who who it should be in the in the in the latin world because because they are latin you know and so um John starts thinking about it and talking about it with his son, and, and he goes all the way, way back to the Mayans and the Incas, uh, and they, they discuss that whole, you know, those civilizations. Um, uh, yeah, it, so many people come up uh, as as they move through forward through the decades. Che Guevara is brought up, Roberto Clemente, um, Sonia Sonia Sotomayor comes up. Uh, and uh, the one person at one point uh, that it's decided who will not be considered as the son's uh, personal hero is Ted Cruz. So that did my heart good. But um, this was a very enjoyable play. Uh, John Leguizamo made his name and reputation doing one quote unquote one person shows years ago, uh, including um, Spico Rama was one that I loved. Mambo Mouth was another one. And then he, um, you know, he became, he really got a lot of fame from those and then started to do more work on film and television. And I, I think that this is his first solo show in a while it's certainly the first one that i've seen uh i i liked it at the public i loved it even more uh it, it currently it's playing at studio 54 um i don't i think it was this is one of those cases where he may have he may have tightened it and improved it slightly it seemed a lot funnier on broadway but i think i i suspect that the main difference was that the audience response was just much more vociferous um and and even more positive than it was downtown. Uh, it seemed so much funnier to me uh, than it was downtown. And John, um, it, it, one of his greatest talents is using different voices to characterize different people in this play among the other people that he that he portrays are his son and daughter and wife um let's see he portrays at one point the father of a of a, a kid at school who's been bullying his kid and all these other little characters it sometimes it may be just be a sentence or two sometimes it may be a longer longer monologues where he's doing different voices for these people the but therapist. he's so, the oh, therapist the therapist! Yes, was hysterical. Okay, <laughs> that was one of the best bits from Off Broadway. <laughs> yeah, he really is is just brilliant at, at using his voice to characterize different people, and he and he's uh, he does women uh, too. Well, I mentioned his wife and his daughter. Um, I uh, I think that the audience really loved this. Uh, it, we, we should note this is playing at Studio Fifty Four, but apparently is just a rental. It is not a roundabout production in any sense. They're not even billed. Uh, I, I, I double checked the title page. They're not even billed anywhere as producers. Um, they've been, as I may have mentioned before, the roundabout seems to be doing a lot more of that. They're functioning more and more as a landlord. Uh, than as a producing organization. And even that production, by the way, of Time in the Conways that we all enjoyed so recently, uh, I mean, they are co-producers of that, but that production originally came from the Old Globe, so they didn't create that from the ground up. And if you look at their current season, there are several other things that are um, – that are really not their shows. They're just putting them in their theaters. And of course, uh, we, we, on top of that, we have beautiful, which has been playing at the Sondheim theater, uh, that that's a long running hit. And then, uh, well, uh, the, 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 it just, 
does seem to me that that's the, the direction they're moving in. And if that's what they need to do to remain solvent, um, you know, I guess that's fine. They, they still have their off-Broadway spaces where, where, they're, where they can be more adventurous. And we, we just recently talked about The Last Match. That was a good play that they produced off-Broadway. Um, and then they have their studio space also at, in, in that same uh, the Steinberg Center. Uh, so... Uh, wh- whatever. I I think that they had a hole, you know, a, a, at least one hole in their season, the current season, and so this one man show by John Leguizamo proved to be the perfect uh, item to just kind of pick up from downtown at the public and and deposit at Studio Fifty Four. I don't. I think it's it works great there. I don't think it. You know, it's not a huge theater, and I think um, that. The audience it seemed so involved at the performance that I went to. Uh, I if if you have any fear about one person shows, I, I don't think you, that your fears uh, will be realized at this one because it's so funny and he is so talented and he it, you don't feel like it's a one person show because he does all of these characters so brilliantly. Uh, so I highly recommend it, uh, especially if you didn't get to see it downtown. All right. So uh, I had a great time. We saw it last night, Saturday evening. Um, And uh, Michael, when did you see it? I saw it last week. I saw it. um, Sorry, just one second. Um, Oh, I saw it on uh, last last Sunday, right after our podcast, Sunday matinee, the 12th. Okay. So... um, The reason I bring that up is because I I wasn't sure if it was a a Saturday night thing or something like that, but uh, we had, I'm thinking, the rudest audience I've ever seen. Uh And I don't know if anybody else had that experience as well, but I wasn't sure if it was a Saturday night thing or something like that. Audience that was uh, disruptive and yelling at him on the stage, and there was some sort of disruption where they had to bring in the security and remove somebody physically. Oh, no. Uh, uh, And people just generally, they came 30, 45 minutes late to the show. Mm. I don't know. And I was talking with my wife after it, and I said, you know, maybe I haven't been to a, uh, uh, a stand up in concert in a long time. And I don't know if people do that, you know, if you're going to see a stand-up somewhere else that you're like, oh, there's a warm-up act, and so I'm not going to show up for the first 45 minutes because I just want to see John. Maybe mm. people were thinking that, or maybe, you know, people getting up and down and, uh, and you know, just disrupting the whole thing. And to, to where before the show started, they made an announcement that said, if you do get up, uh, you're going to have to wait for uh, a an, an usher to bring you back to your seat, that don't just come back to your seat. But people ignored that, and it was up and down and up and down. And we were pretty close in the orchestra in the center, and it was it was just like a traffic jam every couple of minutes. Oh, uh, oh so, wow! And which was so sad because this was this is such it was such an interesting show, and and it's a show with a lot of information. So. You can easily get thrown off track when people are getting up and down. It's disrupting you. you. You lose track of the information that John is going and working so hard and going through. Um, mm. You know, I I, uh, I wish I had seen it downtown because I feel like I missed some of it. But uh, 
and it's it's a tremendously worthy story uh and uh a history of the american people and right uh, oh that's uh, so frustrating yeah it's uh frustrating and and i hope that that this was just it just happened to be that i hit it on a bad night and that you guys didn't have the same experience and that other folks who go to see it because it is running for it's scheduled to run for a while uh, I think that they have it going through February 25th. So um, you have a lot of opportunity to go see Latin history from Orens, and I, I do recommend it. I thought it was really good. Great. It's very interesting that you bring up the audience. The last John Leguizamo play that I saw, uh, Ghetto Clown, when that was on Broadway, when he entered and began speaking to the audience, for the most part, the audience was quiet. And then at some point, somebody whooped or yelled or did something in the audience. And John's face just lit up and he said, oh, good, you're listening. I wasn't sure if anyone was paying attention. <laughs> and he really responded. And from that point in, the audience began responding much more vocally. And he really seemed to enjoy it. He did not discourage this at all. And it occurred to me, you know, things I've heard from... Uh, Western actors performing in Asia, they've complained that Asian audiences will frequently sit completely silently. They won't applaud after songs. They don't laugh very much. They don't react to what's happening on the stage until the curtain call when they will cheer very loudly and really show a lot of support and enthusiasm. But while the show is going on, the way to show respect in that culture is sit perfectly quietly and don't make a sound which for a Western audience to hear absolutely nothing from the audience is rather disconcerting. Mm. And then meanwhile, with a lot of, not to generalize too much, but from what I've seen with African-American and Latino-American audiences, the way to show respect is being, uh, call and response, be involved, call things out and show that you're listening, show that you care, show that this means something to you. And John Leguizamo clearly wanted to hear the audience respond to what he had to say. And the play warmed up a lot back then when the audience began talking back and people were cheering and clapping and making a lot more noise. And I wonder if it's uh, cultural differences into how you show respect for the performers. Do you sit quietly? Do you only clap at certain pre-designated times? Do you only laugh at certain times? Or do you make it much more of a give and take and the audience can respond when they, whenever the mood strikes them? Well, well, and uh, the, obviously, it's it, it's a somewhat different case in a in a show like this where you, you where the performer would want a certain amount of audience response, and I guess it can be a very fine line. But I'll tell you um, just briefly. Uh, I had friends of mine from out of town. Uh, one of them managed to score three cancellation tickets for Hello Dolly. Um, nice. The other night, yeah, well, it may sound nice, but, uh, you know, these, I think they were $225 each uh, for the last row of the orchestra. But they were thrilled because they didn't think they would get them. And, they, you know, they were, did get to see B Bette Midler. And he said his experience was ruined oh, no. by the woman sitting next to him who was clapping along with the song, standing up and and shouting things during the show. Mm. And, oh. the, and to the point at uh, he said... Uh, I said, well, did you say something at intermission? He said, I didn't say anything at intermission because they immediately disappeared and went off somewhere. Maybe they were going to have another drink. I don't know. Uh, but then afterwards, he 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 
<laughs> he uh, apparently uh, turned to her and said something like, you destroyed this experience for me and everyone around us. You are a horrible person, and I'm sorry that you were ever brought to term. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> So uh, maybe that was a bit over the top, but, you know, uh, folks do not behave like that just because you think just because you're paying so, so much money does not mean you can behave however you want to, especially right. if it's going to impact other people because they're paying just as much as you are. Absolutely. Oh, I think you're preaching to the choir here. I know uh, firsthand that Broadway radio listeners are not only beautiful, good-looking, intelligent people, <laughs> but also are the most most well-schooled in how to see a show. Uh, Jenna, I wanted to point out that Michael, uh, that Michael, John Leguizamo, not Michael, John Leguizamo um, did engage the audience in and and. And asked them questions and got feedback and things like this. The the the, the person that was removed, uh, John was talking about, uh, made a "Make America Great Again" reference there, uh. and the person started yes. yelling, "You're you're an asshole." From Ooh. the balcony, from Ooh. the mezzanine or balcony, or it was above us, oh. uh, and it began disrupting the show. He was some sort of um, supporter of mm-hmm. Mr. Trump. Uh, and, uh, so, I mean, it wasn't the, it wasn't a call and response type of thing, which he did and it happened and he really wanted the audience to be engaged, but not to be, not to be disruptive. And that's, and yes, absolutely. But there is a huge line between engaged and disruptive, but I think that line is different for a lot of people. And it's, and especially when you have a lot of different cultures together in one room, what is engaged for one culture is disruptive for another. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's always difficult. And I, I try... I, I like to go to see a lot of different types of theaters, you know, Pan-Asian rep, Harlem rep, all these different, uh, at, what's what I'm looking for, cultural theater groups, but the appropriate, the culturally appropriate reaction to each demographic can be seen as very different. And I always want to be respectful. Uh, but I remember going the first time I went to see a Pan-Asian rep show, I was thinking, when is it appropriate to clap? And am I going to be seen as disrespectful if I, you know, if I react in any audible way? And it's it's an interesting conversation that I wonder if the theater community uh, should should discuss among ourselves. Uh, what is appropriate? What, what is the line between disruptive and engaged? Hmm. And I think it's different for everybody. All right. So let's move forward here. Jenna, you got a uh, chance to see Office Hour at the Public Theater. Yes. So uh, tell us about that. So Peter reviewed this last week, and I agree with a lot of what he had to say. Uh, Office Hour is a very disturbing, powerful play about isolation and mental illness and violence and the connections that can sometimes make those things better. Uh, playwright Julia Cho gets into the mindsets of a potential shooter at a college and the professor, the adjunct professor, who tries to prevent violence when she sees warning signs by forming connections with a very troubled student. And in a very neat device, uh, every scene resets. At the end of each scene, uh, we go to blackout 
and then the lights come back up and we're back a few seconds in time, but someone says something different. And now the next scene plays out differently and we see you know, some scenes, not to put too much of a spoiler, some scenes end with violence. And then it resets and now the violence never happened because somebody said something different. And we get to see different ways that the story can end depending on who says what at what point. So it's a really neat uh, theatrical concept to see uh, rather like the play um, Constellations, I think the play was called from a few years ago, where we see all the different variations of how scenes could go. It's dramatically very effective because just as we think the story has ended, no, it reboots and we start all over again. Uh, my friend walked out of the show really traumatized and was saying she had to watch the exit sign at the theater first quite a few points because she needed to know the way to run out. Uh, she was that disturbed by it. Um, the play does not ask us to sympathize with uh, a shooter or a potential shooter, but to understand the anger and resentment and the paranoia that can drive people to violence when they feel quite wrongly that they're being persecuted. Uh, Su Jean Kim plays the teacher. Ki Hong Lee plays the student. They are both very intense, very powerful. Neil Keller's direction is slow and deliberate. Uh, the tension just grows very naturally and is really effective work by letting the silence build in quite a few scenes. Uh, Ki Hong Lee as the student has, doesn't speak for quite a while and scenes are mostly silent, so he has to create this character just through presence and body language alone. And working with Keller, that does a beautiful job of just building this menacing figure who's completely silent for quite a while in the show. Uh, by the end, when everything is coming to a head, it feels like you're watching a forest fire that was sparked by a candle that just tipped over in the wrong way. And if that candle had been blown out or fell somehow differently, everything could have been completely different. Uh, Christopher Hacklin's lighting, which has to be very precise and very specific, uh, is very effective and does a really nice job of resetting each moment and letting the darkness and the light shift as we're seeing the power play between these characters. Um, this isn't going to be a show for everyone. It's very disturbing. Anyone who has, I would say, uh, you know, PTSD or anxiety issues, they may not enjoy this kind of play. It's It gets under your skin, and it deals straight up with a lot of very intense issues, but it does so very effectively. Uh, if you think you can handle something this disturbing, uh, I really recommend it. It is 90 minutes. Uh, it's a one-act play. I think act two is the conversation people need to have afterwards, talking about the warning signs of violence. And at what point can you do something? How can you connect with people who disturb you and frighten you? And are there ways to prevent violence through bonding and understanding and connections? And at some point, are is there simply nothing you can do? to form a connection. When there's something fundamentally wrong, what do you do? It's a very powerful play, and I do hope people can see it, but go in knowing what you're in for, because like I said, my friend had to watch the exit sign at the door for much of the show. It just bothered her so much. Mm. Mm. All right. So that's The Office Hour at the Public Theater. I think it's yes. playing th through December 3rd. 
Yes, uh, I think so. If my current information is correct. Uh, and so I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you got over to Wagner College where you see or saw a production of Nine. So tell us about this. Yeah, I've been seeing uh, quite a few shows at Wagner over the past several years after uh, I had a period when I just didn't get out there for whatever reason for a while. But now uh, I have been trying to get there more regularly. And I have to say this is maybe the best show they've ever done. And it's not an easy show to do. Also, uh, maybe not the first show you would think of uh, as an ideal choice for a college because it centers around the midlife crisis of the central character, uh, Guido Contini. But um, one good thing about the show uh, to do in a college is that it's got lots of wonderful, wonderful, very rich roles for women. And in fact, um, there's only really one um, male lead, the the central character, Guido Contini, uh, based uh, loosely on Federico Fellini, uh, as presented in the film Eight and a Half. And he's the one who's having the midlife crisis. He has to make a new movie, and he's finding it very difficult. Uh, He's creatively blocked, et cetera, et cetera, aside from all of the dramas he's having in his life with with, uh, his wife and at least two other women. Um, And, uh, yeah, but if you have a college theater department that has lots of really super talented women and there's a show that you're looking forward to do to show them off uh, a show that has lots of opportunities different solos and uh, and duets for for various women this is this is a good one to consider and um, yes Matthew Drinkwater did a magnificent job of characterizing Guido acting in terms of acting. I thought his Italian accent was superb and vocally he was maybe the best the best Guido I've ever heard. Certainly superior to Raul Julia who created the role and uh, I would say even better and more powerful um, than Antonio Banderas who I was really quite wonderful in that Broadway revival. Um, so he did a really great job. He, I, I should say he's a friend of mine so this is a um, not com- not completely unbiased report, but I think the audience felt as I did that his Guido was just excellent. And then uh, the women, phenomenal women, Sophia Tsugro says Luisa, his wife, um, Isabel Miller as Carla, Emma Pittman as Claudia, Santa Claire Hirsch as Liliane Lafleur, and uh, as Guido's mother, we had... Victoria Gitten. And I I have to, uh, two of the things that made this show so enjoyable was that the orchestra um, and the choral work under music director Laurie Young was, was really so excellent, so professional. Um, At Wagner, often the, they don't have an orchestra pit. Sometimes the orchestra is in the house uh, over on house right somewhere. But in this case, they were on the stage at the rear and that actually seemed to work better in terms of blend and uh, the overall sound that was created. Uh, So it was a pleasure to hear them and all, all this, this huge cast of women singing all those beautiful Maury Yeston choral parts. Um, 
I, I, there, there are some really great songs in Nine, and uh, it, it's a show for for different reasons that we discussed earlier. Uh, is not done that often. It's not easy, and I think people should think twice before before they choose it and make sure they do have the right people uh, in terms of cast and staff to pull it off. But if you do, uh, it's 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 one to definitely consider. And I um, I. I Yes, I have to really t- uh, tip the hat to Greg Wiggins, who directed it. This was his first show at Wagner, and I I certainly hope they have him back because he seemed to really pull it all together in terms of direction and pacing and casting. And uh, I I know I I uh, you know it's a bit of a trip to Wagner, but you can get there without too much difficulty because there's a shuttle that goes from the Staten Island ferry, uh, uh, you know, on the Staten Island side to and from the, the school. And then the theater is right there. So, uh, if you want to look it up, I, I really highly recommend it. They performed this past weekend. Then they're taking off for Thanksgiving week and starting again on November 30th through Sunday, December 3rd. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you know I know a lot's going on with the holidays and, and things like that. But if you find your t- yourself with some time during that week, uh, consider it as a possibility. Ah, oh, that's uh, that's great. And I was going to say that nine uh, seems to be done by a lot of uh, university level co- uh, uh, theater departments, and I guess that you hit the nail on the head when you have uh, so many talented women in one spot it seems like a good uh yeah show to do yeah yeah all right uh finally this morning jenna you got over to the public again (laughs) again i'm moving in there honestly before (laughs) office hour or after office hour to see illyria okay jenna so what did you think of illyria down at the public so Illyria at the Public, this is not the Peter Mills musical of the same name, in case anyone was wondering, which, frankly, kind of disappointing because I love that show. But any case, uh, written and directed by Richard Nelson, who has been doing a lot of work at the Public with the uh, the Gabriel plays and the Apple Family plays, I think they're called, neither of which I've seen. I would and probably should have seen. Uh, the play dramatizes Joe Papp's efforts to make professional Shakespeare accessible to the masses by creating the New York Shakespeare Festival, which ultimately became Shakespeare in the Park, produced by the Public Theater. So this all felt incredibly meta. <laughs> so watching a play about Joe Papp at Joe Papp's Public Theater is a kind of fun. Uh, so that process was very difficult. There was a lot of bureaucratic red tape. And it's sort of like 1776. We know how the story is going to end, but by scene two, you're not so sure. Uh, It doesn't make hearing about the struggle to bring that festival to life any less interesting and to see the portraits of all of these artists as young men and women struggling against the odds to bring something special to life. That's always a very thrilling kind of story. So the concept of the play is certainly solid, but the execution is, I hate to say it, somewhat lacking. Uh, Nelson apparently, uh, and he's apparently done this in his other plays, the Gabriel plays and the Apple Family plays, which I've not seen. He's emphasizing a lot of naturalism, uh, which is not necessarily dramatic. Uh, 
It's rather Chekhovian. The play does not always focus on the major confrontations, but it lets us hear about them secondhand. So it tells rather than shows in a lot of cases, which makes it decidedly less intense than you'd think a story about creating art against the odds should be. And I think that weakens the story somewhat. We hear about conflicts with the uh, with Robert Moses and with conflicts with the Parks Department, but these are all told around dinner tables or right. around picnics, and they're anecdotes that, that are being shared. We don't see the conflicts happening. We all hear about them afterwards, and it's just not as dramatically effective. Nelson, as a director, also has his actors speak naturally rather than projecting. And that makes it very hard to follow what they say. There's a lot of overlapping dialogue, and it's not like someone's projecting. So even if there's overlapping dialogue, you can follow one conversation. You really can't follow anything. They're all speaking over each other in very quiet voices, talking like this, you know, and it's kind of hard to understand what they're saying. (laughs) And it just gets so frustrating. The theater has a lot of microphones hanging right over the stage. They're very visible. It's not just a case of one or two hidden mics. They are part of the set hanging down. I want to say there may be 20 uh, microphones dangling over the stage to pick up the dialogue. The theater also offers headsets. Even if you're not hard of hearing, get a headset because I was sitting you know, right in the middle of the theater and I could barely understand what they were saying. So really, if you're listening and you want to listen to this play, get headsets. It's kind of frustrating. That is something that he apparently, Nelson, has had in his head for a while and he's going to just keep doing it no matter what anyone says and no matter how many complaints he gets. I had heard that people were being warned by the staff as they entered to get the headsets. Uh, They missed me. Uh, (laughs) I will always listen to what the staff says. Usually I'll listen to what the staff says. If the staff says, you know, this is not a good place to sit or, you know, gives me some kind of warning, I'm always going to listen. If they had said it's going to be hard to hear, take a headset, I would have listened. Uh, I wonder if this could be solved by doing something like what was done last season at uh, The Encounter by having headsets just placed automatically at every seat so that you know automatically put this on and listen. And I understand wanting to have naturalism, but the problem is nature isn't always that dramatic. So having people speak normally is not going to sound as effective as someone projecting professionally and emphasizing the important words. And having people mutter, isn't, it just doesn't sound that compelling. It doesn't give us a reason to listen, especially when we're not seeing a confrontation. We're only hearing about the confrontation secondhand. And right. there's a big difference between hearing about a fight with Robert Moses. I mean, my God, Joe Pat versus Robert Moses. How much more drama do you need? Yeah. But, but no, because it's all told several hours later at a dinner table. And so then he said, and then I said, and then he said... Uh. It just doesn't, it's not that effective. Um, and the cast, they're fine, but because of this, they don't get a lot of material to show off what they can really do. John Magaro plays Joe Papp. He does some very nice understated work. You can see the tortured, brilliant artist. Uh, you know, as William Finn says, you know, Joe Papp never took crap. You see that <laughs> in his, uh, his portrayal of the character, but it's so understated that we don't get to see the really, the tortured artist to the effect that I think we could see had he been given better material and stronger direction. John Sanders does very nice work as Stuart Vaughn, a director. He gets some powerful moments. The one real 
conflict, the one real uh, confrontation, I should say, in the play is between the two of them. And Sanders gets some great moments where he's actually projecting. He's yelling. He's angry and passionate. And that's one of the most powerful moments in the play when we get that scene with real, strong, powerful emotion right in our faces. That moment is great. But it's one moment in a 100-minute play, 110-minute play. Uh, Rosie Benton plays a very young Colleen Dewhurst, who's talking about her her boyfriend, George. And it takes a few minutes to realize this is George C. Scott they're talking about. And we're seeing all these artists as they're up and coming. And it should be so powerful. And it just isn't. Uh, the direction and the writing leave everything so understated that it's just hard for these really talented actors to shine as much as they should. And another complaint while I'm fetching, uh, Susan Hilferty's costumes, uh, they don't really effect, uh, evoke the 1950s. The hairstyles don't affect the 1950s. Mm. Uh, it's all feels very contemporary. So hearing about the, and, and for all I know, that could be deliberate, that the struggles to create art are universal. But that doesn't really come through when telling this yeah. one very particular story. It's not so much a battle of art versus bureaucracy, art versus you know, artist versus artist. It, it, it could be seen as this universal struggle, but it's a very specific story about specific people in a time and a place and by having them in timeless costumes and timeless hairstyles, or rather contemporary hairstyles, you lose that sense of history. This is history in the making. We don't really get to see that. This is just another fight. Not even a fight. We only see one of the fights. This is a bunch of artists whining about how difficult it is to create art. And it's been done before. It's been done better. The play could be really great. And I, I hope Nelson works on it a bit more. And I hope it stays alive. I mean, the story of Joe Papp is a great triumphant story of art surviving against the odds and creating something powerful and brilliant. But this play doesn't do that story justice. And I think with a, the very gifted cast that's there with a really good creative team, it could, I hope he takes some rewrites and uh, brings it back stronger and better. I think he could. He's a very talented author and a not a, not a bad director either from what I've heard, but I keep comparing this to Nikolai and the Others, a play that was done at Lincoln Center a few seasons ago that also dealt with art against the odds, and that was a much more effective play. I know he can do better, and I hope he will. All right. So I just wanted to uh, tangentially mention a few things here. Uh, Jenna, as you'll see later on today, and Michael, we missed... Uh, a mention of John Leguizamo's impersonation of Joe Papp in Latin history. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh perfect. That's so, right. My, it's, uh, my yeah. whole weekend is dedicated to Joe Papp Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. <laughs> uh, it's just a, a quick passing reference, but very funny. Also, uh, I know that some uh, press agent friends and colleagues of mine were very excited because I know that one of the characters in uh, Illyria is Merle Dubusky. Yes. The yes. longtime press agent. And uh, so they were excited about that. But I'm sorry to hear about the, uh, you know, the issues. I, as I said, it's, uh, I don't know. Uh, Nelson, I think when he first came on the scene, did not direct his own plays. And, and uh, but now he's 
done so, I think, for a while. And maybe he should consider um, letting someone else do some of them again. Yeah. Theater and, is and collaborative. It, it is. Art. It absolutely is. And again, the problem, I don't think, is with the naturalism. Naturalism can well maybe the problem is with the naturalism because like I said natural nature isn't always that dramatic. Being a fly on the wall, as you know, these legendary people are creating art, is kind of fascinating. But when it's just them sitting around a table, complaining about their struggles, it's not nearly as powerful as seeing the struggles up front. So when well, the play shines, it really shines, but it didn't shine as much as it could have. Yeah, I mean, it's all a question of degree. The first time I came across it, I think, was the Broadway production of The Dead, uh, mm. which um, was the, uh, the, the musical, uh, th- which was at the Belasco. And there were scenes when people were, you know, they're supposed to be at a party uh, and they're sitting around uh, in a circle and some of them are facing the back wall. Oh, yes. And, you know, and just talking to each other. And I, I I don't know, to me, that that gets a little ridiculous and high minded to think. Yes, that, that happens that, quite a few times and, in this as well, though. I, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no, no. I just, you know, I mean, I, I think it's as pretentious. Maybe that's the right word to mm. think. Oh, well, this is this is life and this is, you know, how it is. And if you can't hear it, then that then that's just too bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't. There's think. also a lot of actors with their backs to the audience here, although I will say on a three quarter thrust, that's not as grave a sin. Right. If I couldn't see them, somebody else could. So that's less of an issue. But yeah, I agree. I mean, naturalism can be very effective, but in this case, it just doesn't work as well. So uh, before we wrap up for today, I wanted to mention something that may not be evident, but uh, it really hit me uh, interestingly today. Brigadoon at City Center, the band's visit at the Barrymore, Latin History for Morons at Studio 54, Office Hour at the Public Theater, Nine at Wagner College, Illyria at the Public Theater, all of these shows today would not have been possible without the support of nonprofit theaters. Amen for that. God bless the nonprofits. <laughs> you know, you you look at uh, uh, all of these things that we uh, we're if we're going to support great theater, we need to support the nonprofit theaters uh, locally in your own communities or on the on the national stage. Whether you know. Uh, I didn't realize that nine was developed at the uh, the O'Neill Center. Mm, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was looking at I was looking that up, and uh, so like national national development houses, um, you know. Uh, uh, see, where, where was the uh, JFK uh, the LBJ show? <laughs> Not JFK. The LBJ show was at Seattle Rep, or was it? Oh, I Oregon forget. Shakes, Oregon Shakes, or something like that. But uh, support your local nonprofit theater because that's where yes, all, all great theater is coming from. All right. So uh, before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways you can get us. Uh, iHeartRadio, Google Play, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, uh, anywhere that you can get finer podcasts. And please leave us a review, a, a good review. That would be nice. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and we we try to get those pronunciations correct. We do we do try. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, through the miracle of technology, Peter, why don't you jump in here and give us the answer to last week's trivia? So last week I asked, what do the late 60s musicals Canterbury Tales, Celebration, and Zorba have in common? Well, uh, a lot of people said, well, they were all from the 68-69 season, which nobody can deny. Some people said, well, they were all released on Capitol Records, which again, nobody can deny. But what I was looking for was the fact that, oddly enough, these three records, original cast albums, were all released in a single set in a box as well, which is so strange because they really have nothing in common. <laughs> one's from England, one's from God knows where, and the other one from Greece. But anyway, that's what happened. Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, followed by Ed Glazier, John Baccarella, and Kerr Lockhart. This week, I'm looking for two words that sound the same, but aren't spelled the same. One is the first name of a two-time Tony winner, and the other is the name of a theater that was the second stop for the show on its way to Broadway, where it would be a big hit. What are the two words? All right. So on behalf of Peter Felicia, Jenna Tessa Fox, Michael Portantier, and me, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. I would swear I was falling. It's all.